0: In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, brother. All right. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that very much. Okay, well, let's uh, stand, if we will, and um, turn to Matthew chapter 10. We are finishing up our chapter here. And specifically, we're going to look at verses 24 through 31. 24 through 31. For those of you who are new with us, we'd like to stand, have been doing this for quite a few years now in honor of the word of the Lord, as he is worthy of that. So follow along with me, picking up in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they've called the house, if they've called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear; you are more valuable than many sparrows. All right, Amen. You may be seated. That's a very familiar passage of Scripture to most any student of Scripture. Um, something that is easily remembered because of the illustrations. But let's go backwards now and just talk about some of these. I'm gonna, I've labeled this Part One. I need to finish Part Two next time, and that I'm thinking that sure will that will conclude the chapter of instruction and we'll be able to move into chapter 11 but we'll we'll see how this goes okay but just for now let's remember that this as i've already mentioned is the chapter on instruction and and there're many others but specifically the lord is dealing with the 12 and then those that are growing in the number and uh, we're learning from these instructions as we heard last time that these are this is not going to be an easy journey uh, this is not a life of ease that the lord is calling these people to in fact If you remember in your minds, going back to his sermon in chapter 7, very specifically, verse 14, and many other passages, but I just chose this one as a reminder, the Lord said, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there there are few who find it. What the Lord was doing there was helping the disciples, the people listening to him, seated around him on the mountain that day, is that what you're looking to me for is not going to be an easy journey. In fact, it's going to be very demanding. If you remember that sermon some months ago, it was the wide road is that road that is religion. It is the way of ease. Just come as you are and nothing needs to change in your life. But the Lord very clearly says that is not the the path that leads to the kingdom. It is a road that is conversely self-sacrificing, and at times, as I said, with great difficulty, even perhaps from the people that you love the most, the people that you consider to be some of your dearest friends may give you the hardest time at some points in life, and maybe even in an extended way, as we saw last time and learned how there are many people in this life who make a decision to follow Christ and even their very family members deny them and reject them. That might be you this morning. Maybe you were in a home that grew up not knowing Christ and you gave your life to the Lord and, and, the, and your family somewhat rejected you, even if you wouldn't use, use those words. But you know what, what we're talking about here. But thankfully, in the end, it all leads to the kingdom. It is a path that leads to heavenly joy. And Paul would say that in Philippians chapter 3 when he says to the church, brethren... I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. In other words, he's talking about the eternal kingdom. But here's what I do. I forget what lies behind me and I reach forward to to what lies ahead. In other words, I don't focus on the things that once were or the things that are my struggles in this life. I don't keep abreast of all of that, but I keep my eye focused on the prize towards what's coming. In fact, that's what he says in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And, of course, Paul, using wonderful illustrations throughout his writings, he often reverts back to some type of athletic event. And so anybody who knows anything about, about athletics and running and races knows that there is a goal, there's a prize that awaits for those who finish. And so he is saying, that's me. I don't spend my energy on looking back. I don't live the woe-is-me life. I don't look at my failures and and focus on those things. I keep pressing on because I know that there's a greater life that's coming. And that's what we need to do. We need to remember that in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of our frustrations, especially, and I'm going to allude to this a lot as we go through this message, the midst of our uncertainty in our country and all the things that are changing so rapidly uh, we got to remember that this is not our home. And so we're going to have d- trouble. We're going to have difficulties, even from the people that we love the most, quite often. And, uh, but there is a better place coming, and that's what the Lord has promised. And there have been many people who have been obedient to the call of the Lord. There are some examples that came to mind. Jonathan Edwards, if you've done any history of church uh, church studies, of, of history of the life of the church, uh, Jonathan Edwards was a fantastic Proclaimer of the word of the Lord. And this is what he said. And I'm quoting this directly. I claim no right to myself. He says. Listen to his heart. No right to this understanding. This will. These affections that are in me. He's looking internally at his own fleshliness. Neither do I have any right to this body. Or its members. No right to this tongue. To these hands. Feet. Ears or eyes. I've given myself clear away. And not to retain anything of my own. I've been to God this morning and told him I have given myself wholly to him. I've given every power so that for the future I claim no right to myself in any respect. I have expressly promised him for by his grace I will not fail. What a wonderful passage. It's something that every Christian should aspire to, that we would surrender ourselves. Jim Elliott, you'll remember that name, those of you that have been in Christian life for any length of time. The young man who many, many years ago in the 50s, Uh, wanted to be a a missionary, and so uh, started out on that journey and took three of his friends with him and a pilot named Nate Saint and went to the Alka Indians and um, ended up giving their life right there on the beach after about a month, speared through, and you've seen that story and heard of that story. Well, it was Jim Elliott who wrote in his October 1949 journal before he went on that journey and before he gave himself fully into missions work, his heart, From Luke chapter 9, verse 24, he quotes, For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. And he wrote, quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. A very famous quote, but just giving us an indication of what was in his heart. And there are many other people that we could talk about. But for today, the Lord has more instruction. and We particularly want to look at two of those. And so here's the first one. The world will try to make you the bad guy, but treat them with love and kindness anyway. Okay, The world's going to try its best to make you be the bad guy. So now Jesus knew, if we get into the mind of the Lord here for just a minute, Jesus knew that the disciples would remember something that had happened just a little bit earlier. For us, it's back in chapter 9, verse 32, when he cast the demon out of the mute man. You remember that? he knew that that wasn't a good scene. And he knew that the disciples would remember that the Pharisees got pretty upset with him and said that he was doing that out of a power from Satan. And so he's recalling that for the disciples. And he's saying basically here in verse 12, or in, in the verse that we just read for our text today, his instruction is basically be careful. Be careful because if they think this way about me, they're certainly going to think and believe the same thing about you. And they're going to treat you that way. In other words, you associate with me. If they call me of Satan, then they're going to do the same thing, which is what he means here. And this is the verse I was talking about, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher. In other words, they're not going to think differently of you than they think differently of me. A slave is not above his master. It's good in this phrase, it is enough. Jesus is saying it's wonderful when the disciple becomes like his teacher and the slave like his master. But just understand, if they called the head, me, Beelzebub, and what do you think they're going to do to you? They're going to treat you with just the same disdain. Now, just for clarity's sake, Beelzebub was a, a Philistine deity, a satanic idol worship kind of thing. And so they would have understood that in his context. They're calling me this idol satanic worshiper, that I'm a part of all of this. They're going to do the same thing to you. He uses the word malign here. Now, in the New American Standard, at least, that word is not there. In my book, Bible, it is in uh, italics, and that just simply means in the original language it wasn't in that writing, but it was, and it wasn't there not because it's wrong to add it, but because that's what's implied by the Greek language. So anytime you see italics like that, that's what the meaning is. It's an implied meaning that would have been understood in the writing. And the meaning of malign is treat with evil intent. So the Lord's giving, again, clarity. That's the whole point here. He wants them to know that they need to go in caution. If you remember last time, he said, you're sheep, and I'm sending you out into the midst of wolves. And we talked about that. So he's re-emphasizing all this in the same part of the chapter here, basically saying, not everybody's going to love you guys, but that's what I'm calling you to do anyway. And the question really would be, and he doesn't ask it here, but the question in mind comes up, Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to go? Are you willing to present the message of the gospel in whatever way I give to you, even if the world is not going to want to hear it and is going to come against you? Now, the world does that. We've talked about this before. I'll just reiterate it again because the world is blind. The world thinks it knows, but the reality is Satan has blinded their eyes. And so they take out their rage on the one they can see. In other words, they really hate righteousness but because they can't get to god so to speak in a tangible way they take it out on the one who they can see and who is in front of them but again the lord wants them to remember and us to remember that it's really him that they hate and righteousness teaching us i was just having a conversation with a brother just a minute ago is that this is not our message this is god's message It is not for us to be concerned about the message. We are just the deliverers of the message. Now we can mess the message up, and we're real good about that, which is why we need to study, and we talked about that last time. But that's really what's going on here. So I think also he's cautioning the disciples in a way to be able to say, guys, and I'm adding this, okay, this is not in the text, but I think he's kind of saying, guys, I know what the human tendency is. And that's going to be when somebody comes against you, your tendency is going to be to retract. I mean, not to retract, but to retaliate. You're going to want to fight back. That's kind of what our flesh feels, right? You get the angst up in you, and you, instead of doing what God would really have us to do, and remember we want to get to the bottom line and take care of things ourselves. But really what he wants us to do is to remember that they're really pitiful and I'm not talking down to the world. I'm just simply saying they need to up, be awakened spiritually so they see the truth and not be caught up in spiritual darkness. And so the truth is, if you don't look at it that way, it being the way that I was just describing, that the world is blind, that you're going to be easily a tool for Satan. He's going to use your fleshly desires to make things happen your own way if you're not extremely careful. Our flesh can take over and take evil into our own hands and we become the bad guy. And that's what the church has often been accused of over the years. We're not loving, we're not gracious, we're not merciful when we say we're supposed to be. Too often we're all the other because we want to hammer down and there's a place for that. The Word of God does that in places even like this. And what we saw with Sodom and Gomorrah as the Lord brought that up a couple weeks ago. But the reality is what he really wants from us is to remember, listen, you just give my message. I've said this before. The message of God is like a lion that's in a cage. If you just open the door, the lion will do the work. Right? But we got to give the message. We've got to open the door. Now I think, too, Jesus has given a summary of how to live with someone who troubles you by saying the following things. The first one is just a reminder of what he's already said, which is you don't have to stay in that situation. In other words, if somebody keeps hammering you, over and over and over again, and keeps causing you problems, you don't have to stay in that situation. Now, that's a tough call, and there's a lot of examples of what that could look like. But the reality is, the Lord at least told the disciples when you go out and you give the message, you remember, kick the dust off your feet if they don't want to hear it. Now, you have to figure out how that looks in your context. You can't necessarily get another job, but you might. And that's reality. If you're in an environment where you can no longer function like you need to function and you find your flesh just being aroused all the time and it's just not a good scenario, then I think the Lord might say, you know, it would be best for you just to forget about this part and let's move on and give the message to somewhere else. I don't know what that would look like in your context, but the Lord, I think, is saying that. Because secondly, he wants us to be an example of love predominantly. To be an example of love by being patient, Love is patient, right? 1 Corinthians 13, love is kind. Getting to know the person, maybe spending some time with them, doing some kind of kind act for them, whatever it would take to, to reach out to them, to be the one who would say, let me show you what true love really is. And sometimes it manifests itself in that way. And, and those thoughts of mine come from what Paul says to the church in Rome in Romans 12. Verse 14 Bless those who persecute you. That's a staggering statement. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's pretty clear. Skip down to verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Notice the word never. It's never right. It's not okay to say, yeah, but... If possible, so far as it depends on you, in other words, look at the emphasis here. God is not putting the emphasis on the aggressor. He's putting the the emphasis on the individual who is his child. If it depends on you, be at peace with all men. He's not qualifying that. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, then feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, that was an expression of uh, showing uh, love and grace to somebody that they wouldn't know how to recoil from that. They wouldn't know what to do with that. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You want to know how to beat evil? There it is. Be better than the evil. Pretty simple message. Just hard to do. In fact, I understand the challenge of it all, which is why... It's critical for all of us to remember that we can only live this life with the power of the Spirit in us. If we don't have the Spirit of God living in us as born-again people, there's no way we're going to be able to keep it up. We may be okay for a little while, but after a while, it's hard enough with the Spirit in us, isn't it? But after a while, we're going to give in to our flesh, and, and we do have the power of God in us. We know that because of what God told us himself in Acts chapter 1, just before he ascended, After he's given all this instruction, the the disciples have seen his life. They've seen him uh, in his resurrection. He's now about ready to ascend. And he says to them in verse 8, that famous missionary verse, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's the word in Greek for dynamite or dunamis is the word. It's the, the power of God will come upon you and then you will be my witnesses. And in fact, you remember, he says to the disciples, don't leave until the spirit comes because you're going to blow it if you go without the spirit, right? Later, Paul would remind Timothy of God's power as well in chapter one of second Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Uh, What's he given me then, Lord? Power, love, discipline. It's the same power that Jesus was talking about to the disciples. Therefore, notice what Paul says to Timothy. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And evidently he was. That's why he's writing this. He knew Timothy was struggling. But join with me in my sufferings for the gospel. Here it is again. According to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from eternity. There it is, just a couple more illustrations of the power of God that is in each of us as born-again people to do the work that God has called us to do, where you and I may say, oh, it's too hard, it's too challenging, I, I, I'm in a, a work environment or I'm in a, a neighborhood environment or family environment, whatever it might be, and, and I just, I just can't do it. Yes, you can. You can because if you're a child of his, the spirit of God lives in you. And that's where the power comes from. Okay. So but we just got to follow his direction and how we come across and how we live. Now, secondly, that was first. Secondly, to help them to get over their intimidation from the persecution that is going to come on them in their particular case, Jesus instructs them on the next thing. And that is, he says, now don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, why would he say that? Because they would be afraid. And he knew that. He knows, again, human nature. Again, I understand personally. You know, these messages are just for me as much as they are anybody else, if not more. I understand the intimidation of evil people. It doesn't take much to be alarmed by the evils of this world. If you watch YouTube, you watch uh, anything online, you'll see all kinds of stuff that causes your heart often to go... "Mm." You, know, you kind of skip a beat sometimes when you hear things, you see things. Uh, case in point for us, just this last week, it wasn't really that big of a deal, but to just tell you the thought behind this, uh, my neighbor, actually I was on Wednesday night, my neighbor texted me while I was teaching the class, I didn't see it till afterwards, <clears throat> and said that there's been a car in our neighborhood for the last off and on time, and I've seen the car too, and her husband went out to take a picture of the car and try to see the person and um, they sped away real quickly and nothing came of it, but there was a lot of fear in her, in her voice. You could tell from even just from her text, I should say. And, and, and we feel that kind of thing. You know, you mention things like that to people and they lock their doors, they go make sure the door is tightly closed. Uh, I've got a relative in my family, an extended family, who um, can't go to bed without checking all the door locks multiple times. Why? Because there's this intimidation by evil out there. But the Lord says, hey, don't be afraid. That's a tall order. But he says, here's why you don't need to be afraid. Number one, because God sees and knows everything that evil people do, and he's going to deal with them in his own time. So he says, go, share the message that I've given to you, And don't be afraid. But Lord, this doesn't sound like a good plan. You're sending me out among the wolves. Yeah, I know that. But here's why you don't need to be afraid. Look at verse 26. There is nothing concealed that will not be revealed. There's nothing hidden that will not be known. Now, the world may think they're not accountable to anybody. And you put in there who you want that to be when I talk about the world. And we may be even tempted to think the evil people get off scot-free. Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? It's very easy to feel that way. But the Lord is telling us He sees everything that everyone does. He knows intimately everything that everyone does. In other words, He misses nothing. There's nothing that escapes the Lord's notice. You and I look at the headlines and we go, Good grief, is anybody watching this? Yes, His name is God. He sees and He knows. And he will deal justly with everyone in his own time, and in his own way. There's nothing that the evil world does that will not be brought out into the light. He's told us this in his word. It will all be uncovered. There's nothing that's going to stay hidden from God's righteous judgment. So Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. Kind of like, I got this. Okay? I got this. Now, again, I understand the challenge, not because of the fear only that it generates, but because we want results now, as I was saying. But Lord, when are you going to do this? When are you going to take care of this? We want the retribution now. But again, we have to remember we're here on God's time, not our time. These things that you've known of over the years, and I'm just repeating them. It's not This life is not about what you and I want. We have to remember that. We want certain things. We want things to happen. But we're to follow God's plan and how he does and what he does when he does it. It's not up to us to decide for God how things are going to go. We are servants. You could put it this way. We are slaves. We're slaves of to the most perfect, wonderful, beautiful, benevolent, gracious, merciful master that there ever has been or ever will be. And so he will take care of us. And he will take care of all who put their trust in him. And there are some guys who've known that over the years. People who've known that. You remember Daniel? Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, if you want to actually flip back to Daniel chapter 3, or you can watch it on the screen, he had three friends named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you remember the context, King Nebuchadnezzar, who had taken them into captivity from Israel, had uh, an idol built to himself, and he was convinced that everybody should fall down and worship the idol that that he had, had resurrected, that they could all worship. And so when Daniel's three friends didn't do that, it caused problems. And so they're brought before the king in verse 16 and they say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. In other words, the king asked them, why aren't you bowing down? And they say, we don't need to tell you, king. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. Now, I didn't tell you this part, but if you know the story, the king had said that anybody who doesn't bow down will be thrown into a furnace. And they say, we don't need to worry about that. He will deliver us out of your hand. That's great confidence, isn't it? They evidently knew that God was going to deliver them, at least we think, until we get to verse 18. Notice what what they say. But, even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Don't hear any intimidation in their hearts, do you? No intimidation at all. Why? Because their trust was fully in God. They knew that God had the circumstances in hand, even if it meant that God was going to take them through the furnace anyway, which is what he did, certainly, and got them out. But they were saying they didn't know God was going to rescue them. They were saying that even if God allows us to perish in the fire, we are not going to fall down and worship your God. Another example is again young Timothy, a man who was very intimidated by the people of his church evidently and some evil that was going on and so Paul had to remind him the same thing in 1 Timothy 6. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. That's a a very important statement because take hold means get a grip. Not like we would use in the phrase, hey, get a grip, Timothy, but kind of like that. Paul was reminding him of something very tangible. He was saying, look, Timothy, here's the deal. You're afraid of human beings. But you're missing, because you're missing the truth of eternal life. So take hold, grasp eternal life in your heart. Hold on to it tightly. You're going to be troubled by a lot of people, but keep your heart fixed on eternity. It's the same message. And and this Truth is why Stephen, when he was being stoned, could cry out in Acts 7, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was literally stoned to death. I can't imagine a more horrible or violent death. But yet in his heart, he was able to say, Lord, I see the picture clearly. They don't even know what they're doing. I'm trusting you. And yes, Stephen did die. But notice this is beautiful just as an aside note. Never in the scriptures does uh, death or is death ever referred to as death. It's always referred to for believers at least as going to sleep. And here's a good example. Paul would use the same illustration in some other places. So yes, Stephen died, but he really spiritually only fell asleep. Why? Because he awakened in eternity. Okay, now, because the 12 would need some more encouragement, and you probably do too, Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Wow. And what the Lord is saying here is that man can do a lot and man does do a lot. There have been some very gruesome things that man has done to people to kill the body. Terrible and painful things. But the Lord is pointing out that it doesn't matter what man does to another man. It's temporary at best. They can put you through the most gruesome things, but it is God who holds the greater power. Why? Because Jesus says because he holds not only the physical body, but the soul of the person in the palm of his hand as well. Now notice the word destroy. I want to clarify something here because often people will look at the word of God and they'll use words incorrectly or assume it means one thing when it doesn't. Destroy isn't in the sense that you and I would normally think of it like it's gone, it's finished, it's over. Okay, This is not referring to total annihilation. Some people would say, oh, when we die, we just cease to exist, we're done. There's nothing left. But that's not what the Greek word means here. This word really is used in the sense of loss or ruin. In other words, there is a never-ending torment that occurs. Okay, The soul stays alive it's not utterly annihilated and we know that from passages that Jesus will get to eventually at least Matthew will record this in chapter 25 when he's talking about the end of the days Jesus says he that's God will say to those on his left depart from me accursed ones into the eternal fire and you have to put those words together which has been prepared for the devil and his angels that's what it was originally prepared for for I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't help me. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick in prison, you didn't visit me. And they'll say, when did we see you in all these conditions? And he'll say, whenever you saw one of the least of these like that, you should have seen it as me. And I'm paraphrasing there. Verse 45, then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These those who do not obey God, and he's talking about the totality of life and following him with their hearts in salvation, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Sorry, I got the verse in there twice. Okay, just as a reiteration. So the Lord is saying, listen, the reality is the soul of man is held firmly in the hand of God. And so when we're fearful, we have to remember that. And so we are to hold on to eternal life. There was a man as just another illustration of, uh, of history that understood this. He was the Bishop of Worcester in the Reformation. He was a, a chaplain later to King Henry the Sixth. Uh, and the quote goes When Hugh Latimer was preaching one day in the presence of King Henry VII, he reports that he said to himself, Latimer, Latimer. Remember that the king is here. Be careful what you say. That's what he was hearing in his own heart from his flesh. And then he said to himself, Latimer, Latimer, remember that the king is here. Be careful what you do not say. For such unflinching faithfulness, Latimer was eventually burned at the stake during the reign of Queen Mary I, but he feared failing God more than he feared offending men. Why? Because Latimer knew his soul was safe with God. And there are many other people over a period of about 300 years of terrible persecution. I've I've read that uh, 10 generations of Christians dug nearly 600 miles of catacombs beneath and around the city of Rome. Imagine that. That's a lot of miles, isn't it? Archaeologists estimate that perhaps a total of 4 million bodies were buried there, A common inscription found in the catacombs is the sign of the fish, which you know if you're a Christian that that becomes the symbolic meaning. Well, here's where it comes from. It's a Greek word which was used as as an acrostic for Jesus Christ, God's son, Savior. Another common inscription found there is the word of God is not bound. This is all in the catacombs in these miles and miles of millions of bodies that were there. During the most prolonged period of persecution, the text says, in the history of the church, those believers revered God more than they feared man. And not to mention the writing we have in Hebrews chapter 11, which is known commonly as the faith chapter, or the the chapter about those who had great faith. And we're told that these were people who were treated in such horrific ways Or they were stoned and sawn in two and tempted and put to death by the sword. Went about destitute and afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All because they were persecuted for the faith in Christ. But yet the Lord's mentioning of them in verse 38 is that these were people who the world was not even worthy of. Okay, now I want to come back to verse 27 because you may have noticed that I skipped verse 27. I think it fits better in light of what we're talking about here to go this direction. So, in light of all of those truths now that we were just talking about, Jesus now says, What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. So, he's dealt with the emotion of it all, and now he's saying, Look, here's what I want you to do go deliver the message. Instead of being intimidated by a world of people that cannot do anything to your soul, yes, they may kill your body, but they can't do anything to your soul, speak everything that I say for you to speak. Whatever I reveal to your heart, give it. Which, by the way, are not to be our thoughts, right? And we know that because we said last time that we should be studying the word of the Lord so that our thoughts are really the thoughts of the Lord. Amen? We study the scriptures so that when the time comes that we're to give witness of Him, we are able to go to the scriptures in our mind and our heart, if not directly on the page, and say, thus says the Lord. This is what God says. This is not my message. I'm just the deliverer. You can shoot me if you want, but praise His name, I'm going to live forever Because the eternal life of man is so worth it, the Lord knows the fear of these men. He knows the concern, and we have record of that. You can look through the Gospels, and you can see how they responded in certain ways. I think you and I need to ask ourselves some questions. One of those predominantly is, what is the worth of a soul to me? Better yet, what is the worth of a soul to God? That's an easy question to answer, isn't it? Jesus demonstrated his love for us. And while we were yet sinners, he gave his life for us. The real question better is the first one I mentioned, and that is what do you and I think the value of a soul is? You see, we're so intimidated by the world that we put more value on our own souls instead of the eternal souls of men, men and women. Sadly, John Stott put it this way, Just when the world is becoming more aware of its need, and this was written a long time ago, but you and I know that if you've been paying attention to the culture today, uh, back when COVID first started, there were a lot of questions. If you were listening, they may not know what questions to ask, but the world was asking questions. There was a small, one person put it, not a door, but a window into the gospel, and it didn't stay open very long, because the world doesn't leave the window open very long. But they were asking some questions. And Stott says, not even talking about COVID, but years ago, the church is becoming less sure of its mission. And the major reason for the diminishing Christian mission is the diminishing confidence in the Christian message. Boy, that's a powerful statement. Beloved, listen. If you're confident in the one who gave the message, then the message will be just as powerful as the one who gave the message, right? And so you go triumphantly into the darkness shining the light of truth in love and peace and shrewdness as Jesus talked about and and careful like a dove but also knowing you're going into the midst of the wolves so that you know that you have the weapon in your hand that belongs to God. It's not yours. And so you wield it as he gives it to you. Speaking of value now, listen to how valuable you are. The Lord says in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear you're more valuable than many sparrows. Now, Jesus's illustration was a very common picture that the people would have understood. It would be us like going to the store to the dollar store and picking up some little trinket. Well, a sparrow was like that Cheapest form of hors d'oeuvre or, or snack foods that the poorest of people could afford, and people would do that. They would buy these little little animals. It would cost, historically, I read, about a sixteenth of a day's wage. So it was almost nothing for the poorest person to buy, and. Um, giving them very, very little value. And so Jesus picks up on this and he says, as cheap as these little sparrows are for the cheapest or the poorest of people to purchase, God is still aware of them when they perish. God knows. In fact, I found this and I thought this was really cool. It just made it jump out of the page to me. In some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways of Greek writing, the word fall here, like what's used in this passage, sometimes can mean to hop. And so the picture there is God even knows when the most insignificant bird of the air hops on the ground. And so Jesus is drawing their attention, just like he did to the people on on the side of the mountain, and saying, you see the little sparrow there? Let me tell you how much value he has to God. But you are so much more valuable. Now, Jesus continues on his comparisons because he uses another one. Notice he says, even the numbers of your hair are known to God. The numbers of the hairs of your head. Now, some of us, as I said to the first service, have less of those than others. But the average number now, some of you really smart people already knew this, but the average number of hairs on a person's head are about 140,000. That's a lot. Jesus picks up on this, and almost like you can see him standing there with the people and say, You see this stuff? See your hair, John, Peter? See your hair? God has them all numbered. Now, that's not Jesus' point. His point is if God has your hair numbered, which you go get cut off, and it gets dirty and nasty and twisted up and knotted, and God knows all about that, how much more valuable do you think your soul is to Him? Do you see His argument? I think it's a very powerful argument. Now, just a footnote to add to that thought, if we're that important to God, we should be that important to each other. This is kind of a side note here. We were talking about this on Wednesday night, and I thought it was worthy of bringing it up again, meaning that all of us need to pay attention to each other. Every one of you who sits in a chair this morning, and even the world out there, is valuable to God. You're precious to the Lord, based on his illustrations here, and based on his own actions. And people need that. I mean, the truth is, when somebody says, I'm fine. Remember us talking about this on Wednesday night, those of you who were in the class? When a person says, or is asked, hey, how you doing today? I'm fine. They kind of do this number. Well, my thought is, is if you multiply that I'm fine by 25 or 50 or 100, that's really probably how they feel. Telling you that I can't really say, but I'm struggling with things in life. And so you and I, as much as we're valuable to God, we need to look at each other and be able to say, no, let me let me help you if I can. When I'm asking you how you're doing, I really want to know, how are you doing? What can I do to help? You know, it's so easy to dismiss our pleasantries, isn't it? And just kind of get careless. Sometimes people ask us how we're doing and we'll think later, did they even ask me how I was doing? Because we're so new, used to the common pleasantries, as I said. But we need to look at each other in this room this morning even and say these souls are valuable to God so they must be valuable to me. How can they not be? It's critically important. It breaks my heart. And I mentioned this on Wednesday night That, um, and this is an indictment on me and I take responsibility as more than anybody. Uh, I had a lady who came in uh, to my office and actually saw hemp first and then saw me. Been a long time member of the church. And said, I was gone for five weeks and nobody contacted me. Now, that's a, again a sad indictment on me, and I feel the weight of that heavily. But it tells me that we need to be diligent about our looking at one another in light of the value that God has for us and what He would do for us. We need to do the same for one another. And not always look for somebody to come to me, that's not the idea. The idea is that because we have the Spirit of God in us, we go to those that are in need, right? That was just a footnote because it was on my mind. Now, imagine for a minute if the Lord didn't know. What if right this moment God had no idea what was going on in your life and didn't care? That would be pretty sad, wouldn't it? And some of you may feel that way anyway. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, based on the authority of God's Word, that's not true. That's a lie. Don't listen to that. God knows what's going on in your life. But just imagine for a minute if he didn't. That's what Satan wants you to think. That's exactly what he wants you to think. He wants you to believe that you have nobody that loves you. Nobody cares about you really. He wants you to see all the mistakes that you make. He wants you to see all the things that people come against you with. And wants you to focus on that. In fact... The beauty, though, is that not only does the Lord know all about us, listen to what the psalmist wrote. Psalm 139, Lord, you know when I sit down, when I rise up. You know how many times we've done that this morning already? You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Don't you love that? intimately acquainted with all my ways. Now some of you might be saying I don't want you to be that acquainted with all my ways. Well he is. He misses nothing. Psalmist says even before there was a word on my tongue listen you know it all. What's he saying? Before you and I even think the word in our heads to come out of our mouth the Lord already knows it. That's how close he is to us. That's how well he knows us. So, what we need to know from this is that when we're frightened by the world and what God may require of us, he's in control of all things. That's really the message here to the disciples. He has the days of our life numbered, meaning we're not going to die till he decrees it. You just have to believe that. David Jeremiah famously said, at least that's where I heard it, the man or woman of God is indestructible until the Lord calls him home. That's a great statement. Meaning you can face anything that comes at you, but God is in control of it all. Either for his glory somehow or for your growth or both. Sovereignty simply says that he is in control of all things, all things, all people, and nothing's going to change that. So even in our world today, you don't need to fear anybody or anything. Respect, yes. Remember, we're sheep going out to the wolf. We're not going to be stupid. We've got to be wise, we're cautious, but we're never to be fearful. You don't ever need to be fearful of what may or may not happen. All God wants from us is to live a righteous life, the life that he's instructed us to live, and always remember you're far too valuable for him to allow you to slip through his fingers. Isn't that great? Far too valuable. The problem is not God, beloved. The problem is us. We just have to believe what he said. And he came to demonstrate that. In fact, this morning, and we're going to move into that right now, it's Communion Sunday. And it's a beautiful picture of the Lord's example of himself come for us. He gave his body. He gave his very life so that you and I can be assured of these truths that he has instructed us on about himself and his love for us. So take that little cup out. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. As I was saying to the early service this morning, we could look at the gospel account where Jesus gives this at the Lord, at the Last Supper. But I just like 1 Corinthians 11 just because it seems to give us some inner thoughts a little bit differently. Verse 23: I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was tempted, took bread. Betrayed, excuse me. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. We do this once a month because for years we did it quarterly, and I just felt like we needed to be reminded a little bit more often. It should never become, I don't know, second nature. And I'm saying that because of what the Lord says here. This is this is a picture of my body. It's an illustration of my body that was given for you. And I want you to remember that. So do this in remembrance of me. Take part in that little cracker. Remembering this bread is not becoming the body of Christ. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us that. This is a symbol. This is a, an illustration of His body that was given for us. Not broken. Because his body was not broken. We're told that in Scripture, but it was given for us. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I have given my life to make a way for you to have direct access to the Father. The debt has been paid, the sacrifice has been made. It was required by God because God said that all who sin must die. And so God, loving us, didn't want that to continue. And so he gave of his son's life to pay the purchase price. And so the new covenant in his blood is just that, that Jesus came to pay the eternal redemption for us. And he says, I want you to drink this. And every time you do, take part in this. Remember that this is what I did for you. So take part in that, if you will sometimes I don't read the latter part of this chapter but I think I should this morning just because it fits with our message notice Paul would write this now whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner you know what he's talking about He's not talking about whether you hold your hands right or hold the cup right or how you're dressed or what kind of service you're in. He's talking about an unworthiness of the heart. He's talking about the sin of the heart that says, I'm not really sure I believe in this. That's really what he's talking about. He says, that person shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, if you deny the truth of who I am and what I've done, It's as if you're standing at the foot of the crucifix, nailing me to the cross. You're the perpetrator. You're the aggressor. That's an unworthy heart. But a man must examine himself, Paul says, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and the cup. In other words, look at the heart. Lord, do I believe? Is this reality? Is this truth? Then take part in it. For he who eats and drinks drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, in fact, many are weak and sick and many have fallen asleep. Now he's talking to the church here. He's talking about judgment to the church. People who are not living a righteous life who profess to be believers in the Lord. And so even in some cases, the Lord even takes their life. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we'll not be condemned along with the world. In other words, when the Lord says, hey, in your time of examination, I want you to confess this to me. I want you to confess that. I want you to look to this. I want you to examine this and bring it to the light and you'll not be judged like like the rest of the world will be judged. He's talking about the moment we fully trust and embrace him and repent of whatever... We need to repent of, first, of our own sin that leads us into judgment that does not believe in him, but then secondly, just the sin that lives in our flesh that would seek to take away from who Christ is. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and uh, Lord, elaborating all of, all of that just reminds me uh, of your sacrifice, and, and that so often we take it for granted. I think in too many ways we, we forget, whether it just be through normal life circumstances or whatever, just carelessness, we forget your great sacrifice. So thank you for this um, this time together, this example, these illustrations, not only through the instruction of how to live without fear and displaying your word, but also for reminding us of what you did for us. That's what we're to focus on that because you gave us your life, we are to give our lives for you. So help us, Lord, now as we face our world today, whatever that may look like for each person respectively. Lord, would you fill us with the knowledge of who you are once again? Just remind us. Would you just show that power in and through us, not for ourselves, but so others will see and hear the truth as we just live each day for you and speak when we can speak, And do what you command us to do in the presence of the world. So that they too will come to know you. That's our goal. That's our hope. Lord, in the meantime, we pray that you would be honored and worshipped as we've done so today. We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen.